Welcome our visitors this morning. We're glad you're here. Glad you're sharing your morning with us. We uh, are in the middle of a conversation in the book of Hebrews and been in the conversation for about three years now. We uh, invite you to join us this morning, climbing back in. We're closing out the uh, sermon of Hebrews, which is what it is, of one big sermon here in these next few weeks. So we're glad you're here with us. Uh, we had planned on Skyping with our a uh, little team that we have in Kazakhstan this morning, but that didn't work out. But I would like you to turn off the live feed because we're going to pray specifically for that work, if you do that. It sounds like I'm sort of turned up a little bit, so if you can turn me down a little bit. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we are thankful for the time that we have together this morning together, thankful that we can gather corporately that we can trust that we are safe, that we uh, have the freedom to do this. We're enjoying a, a freedom um, that not all Christians have. And I uh, pray that we not take that lightly this morning, not take it for granted. Lord, lastly, this morning, I want to pray for how we spend these next few minutes. I just pray for uh, clarity of mind. I pray for insight into an ancient story to help us make sense of our present story thankful that the Holy Spirit works in spite of us and through us and uh, that he speaks. Um, and I just ask him to speak to our hearts this morning. Uh, we love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. As I said earlier, we are coming toward the end of a long sermon. That's what the book of Hebrews is. It's a sermon from a pastor who's not with his church at this moment physically, he is writing to them, encouraging them not to bail on Christianity. Apparently, they're considering bailing on Christianity because it's hard. We believe this church, this Hebrews church, was in Rome. Some of the clues point toward their being in Rome. And if they would, be, if they would have been, as we're um, interpreting from this, this letter and this sermon, if they would have been a, a Christian, Jewish Christian church in Rome, they would have faced severe persecution. Not, not just from the Roman Empire, but especially from Jews. So they, um, they needed this letter. They needed this sermon. Um, and we're climbing in toward the end of it as he is encouraging them with a chapter, really chapter 13, full of advice, strong advice. Last Sunday and this Sunday, though, are sort of a challenging passage. This Sunday less so than, yeah, than, than last, but a very challenging passage to make sense of. Um, hopefully this morning will be more straight away than last week was, but uh, I think there are some real treasures here, even for a bunch of folks that aren't in danger of becoming Jewish. There's significant relevance for us this morning. So the plan of attack for these, these passages, we're going to look at specifically verse 11 through 14. Verses 11 and 12, I'm going to spend about two minutes on. And verses 13 and 14 uh, are going to send us on a little journey this morning to 1,500 years earlier, their time, 3,500 years before our time. So let's begin with verses 11 and 12. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Now, if you're parachuting into this story, if you're visiting with us, or if you uh, weren't here a few years ago when we were in this passage, a couple years ago when we were in this passage, or 
the passages that help explain this. What's being referenced here is the Day of Atonement, a significant celebration in the life of the, the Jews where they are enjoying God's atoning for their sin one day a year. That's in the book of Leviticus, goes into a lot of detail explaining it. But the imagery that's being portrayed here is showing us, he's pointing back to the blood of the sacrificial animals being brought into the holy places to temporarily atone for the sins of the people. Contrasted with Christ's blood who was brought into the most holy place to pay for our sins permanently. He's developed that earlier in the book and earlier in the sermon. And as the bodies of those animals were burned outside the camp, Jesus suffered also outside the camp. So this familiar, this Leviticus passage, this Leviticus practice, the Day of Atonement, this imagery is leading them somewhere, though. I'm not going to get bogged down in it because he doesn't get bogged down in it. He's developed it elsewhere. He's leading them somewhere geographically and biblically. And it's a place that you might never think of. I wouldn't have thought of unless I had some help. He's leading them geographically outside the camp. And he's already said it once. He said outside the camp and outside the gate. Two references that will develop over the course of the morning. He's leading them geographically somewhere. And he's leading them biblically to an event for them that was 1,500 years earlier. For us, it would have been 3,500 years ago to an event in the story and the life of their Jewish forefathers as they're freshly sprung from Egypt. We'll come to this here in a moment, but let me go ahead and pick up our last two verses. Watch where we're going geographically. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city to come. He's added a new image in there. To outside the camp and outside the gate, we can now include outside the city as being a place where he's calling his people to go because it's a place where Jesus went. Now, let's go to where he's leading us geographically. Turn to the book of Exodus, specifically chapter 32. As you're turning there, I'm going to give you a little bit of context. I use these little headings in my Bible, and I encourage you to use them because they help you give you a reference. Whenever you're climbing into a passage, instead of being an ignorant parachuter, you can at least be an informed parachuter who has a sense of the lay of the land. And here's a sense of the lay of the land. Beginning in chapter 19, God has the nation of Israel on Mount Sinai. He's led them out of Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea on dried ground. And he's led them to the base of a mountain called Sinai. And it's here at Mount Sinai that he gives them the Ten Commandments, chapter 20. And it's here at Mount Sinai that he speaks from heaven and it scares the britches off of this people. In chapter 20, verse 19, it says, The people said to Moses, You speak to us, Moses, and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. So Moses said to his people, Don't fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. So the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. We're getting sort of a lay of the land there. God speaks from heaven at, the, at Sinai, and the people are scared beyond description 
And they ask Moses to go talk with God for them, to go hear from God for them. So Moses spends the next few chapters hearing from God at the top of the mountain. He's got Joshua with him. He spends what we believe to be 40 days at the top of the mountain getting all sorts of laws, laws about slaves, laws about restitution, laws about social justice, just following the headings. The covenant is confirmed. And then he starts giving them some details for a tent that he wants them to build in the camp called the tabernacle, sort of a mobile version of what would later be called and build the temple. He's given them descriptions or given Moses descriptions and details as to what this is supposed to be like. He describes the Ark of the Covenant in chapter 25, the table for bread, the golden lampstand. He goes into more detail in chapter 26, the bronze altar, the priest's garments, the altar of incense. Chapter 31, he even gives the details about who he wants to do the work, Aholiab and Bezalel, these artisans. Now, he spends about 40 days up here on the top of the mountain, and at the end of these 40 days, in chapter 1, verse, excuse me, chapter 31, verse 18, he gave Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Those tablets of stone would be familiar to you, the Ten Commandments. Now, meanwhile, we're going to the meanwhile in chapter 32. While Moses is still at the top of the mountain, he's doing work up there. He's getting it done. He's hearing from God on behalf of the people. He's recording what he's hearing. And meanwhile, chapter 32 is going on at the base of the mountain. Let's climb into the chapter. We're going to read most of it, little excerpts I might skip over here and there, but I'll guide you through it. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain... The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, like like the boss, like their bosses, up, Aaron, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't even know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, okay, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears, brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Really? Really? I mean, let the, let the, the, it's just ludicrous, isn't it? When you just take it in and say, okay, what just unfolded makes me want to laugh. These people must have really been bozos, is what, is what you think at first blush. Well, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. <laughs> and they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. Man, 40 days goes by. Just 40 days earlier, they're saying, man, we can't hear from this holy God. It scares us to death. Moses, you go hear from him. Within a period of 40 days, they're dancing around a fire like a bunch of hooligans worshiping a golden calf. Man. The Lord said to Moses, Moses, go down for your people. 
whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. That doesn't sound good. The language of that doesn't sound good because I, I, Moses must have been thinking, wait a second, God, I thought they were your people. They're now my people. What on earth has happened down there at the base of this mountain? As if God would have been oblivious to what Adam and Eve were up to. He knows exactly what's going on with them as he knew exactly what happened with Adam and Eve. They turned aside quickly out of the way, God tells him, that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That would have to smart, don't you think? God doesn't smart, I don't think. But I would have expected that would be hard to hear from people you just delivered And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. And things don't look good for Israel. God is ready to destroy the entire people and make a whole new people just of Moses. It sounds like Noah and the ark all over again in a lot of ways. But Moses implored the Lord, it says in verse 11. He begs him down in, later on in verse 12, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember, he appeals to what God has promised. He says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken in verse 14 that he had spoken of bringing on his people. And then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. As they're making the way, their way down the mountain, Joshua hears the noise of people as they shouted in verse 17. And he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, no, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made, and he burned it with fire. He ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink of it. Verse 21, Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it in the fire and pop, out came this calf. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. 
And Moses said, Today you've been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. God wasn't satisfied with the 3,000 who died either. In verse 35, it says, The Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. It's a tragic story. It's not one that I spend a lot of time on, but it's pivotal to the story of the life of Israel. As I've studied it this week and considered all these details and all these images, it has all the the common details of the fall in the garden. Eat from any tree in the garden you want to eat of, but just don't eat from that one. All the garden and all the fruit from any tree, but you just had to eat from that one. Adam and Eve, really? Really? They ate and they drank and they rose up to play. Sounds familiar. They traded the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature who is blessed, or the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And there's some terrible consequences of their sin. Terrible consequences of death, as in Adam and Eve invited death into the world. Terrible consequences of them eating and drinking and rising to play. The, the consequences of this sin, the golden calf, is lots of death. 3,000 die that day. And then on top of that, God sent a plague on the people. It's a heartbreaking story. But there's something that happens after this that's obscure, maybe to us because we're Gentiles 3,500 years later or 2,000 years later after the guys in Hebrews would have gotten this sermon. They would have made a beeline likely to this story. But we have to work at it. It's treasure when you see it, though. See, what happens next is surprising in this end of this chapter or this next chapter, verse 33, beginning in verse 7. If you notice the heading there, it says the tent of meeting. This tent of meeting is not referring to the tabernacle that would be built later. This is a pre-tabernacle. This is where Moses met with God. And it's a little bit difficult here in our direct translation, but they would have been reading the Septuagint. You can make a beeline to it in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. I'm not going to go there, but we're going to at least make sense of what it would say. In verse 7, it says, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp. In the Septuagint, the translation is, Moses took his tent and pitched it outside of the camp. It's a hard thing to develop here because unless you're reading and paying attention, it's a whole new chapter. It looks like something else has happened, but not much has happened. They're still neck deep in the middle of the consequences of their sin with the golden calf. So... The beeline that the Hebrews preacher makes, the beeline that we should make, the beeline that is being made is a consequence of this, is the tent of meeting is moved outside the camp. Watch what happens here in verse 7. Now Moses used to take, are we going to read it like the Septuagint, Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. It's not the tabernacle, it's the pre-tabernacle. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door. 
and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent that's outside the camp. This is an obscure but equally terrible consequence. For God to move his presence from within the people of God to without is a terrible consequence of their sin. God is no longer dwelling in and with his people. He's moved out. And he's moved far off, far outside the camp. And now he must be sought away from the camp. It's only by departing the Jewish camp would they find their God again. Out and away from the camp. Sounds a lot like Eden. The separation that they experienced from God as a result of their sin. There's no more walking in the cool of the day with God, but God has separated himself from them because of their sin. And as a result of their terrible sin, they don't enjoy his presence in and among them. Now the Hebrews preacher uses this story and this obscure detail for us story, a detail that would have been clear for them to show what Christ did and what the Hebrews church should do. As a result of the terrible sin of their contemporary Jewish people who crucified and rejected the Messiah, those Jews, their grandparents maybe, as a result of their sin, rejecting the promised Messiah, he departs his from his previous dwelling place in and with and among the people to the place that's far off from the camp, outside the gate, outside the city, the place where people are crucified. It's a place called Golgotha. And it's here, it's here that these Jewish people are encouraged that they have to go find him away from the Jewish camp, away from the Jewish city, outside, far off. This is a skillful, and I'm going to just say it's genius. It is Holy Spirit-fueled use of an old tragic story to show the Hebrews church where they must go and stay. Outside the safe and familiar precincts of Judaism. They're tempted to go back to the city, and he's saying it's not there. God's not in the city anymore. He's not in the camp anymore. He's moved out. It might be familiar. It might be respectable. It might even feel safe back there in Judaism, back there in the city, back there in the camp. But God has moved out. You've got to step away from all of that to go find him. He's showing them that following Christ means a radical departure from the known and the familiar And the easy, this is where things start to connect for us. Following Christ is a radical departure. And where you have to go in following him, it's not easy out there, outside the camp or the city. You're going to face the reproach that he experienced. You're going to face the suffering that he experienced. But it's good out there, for that's where God is. That's where you find him. And you only find him there because he moved It's a beautiful illustration that has wonderful implications for us. I was thinking about our context. You know, I don't know that any of you are tempted to go back to practicing Judaism. I don't know of any of you who practiced Judaism. Some of you might have. 
I don't know of any of you who have that background, but I think this still has tremendous relevance for us because the Jewish problem is a tutorial for the human problem. The Jewish situation, their stiff nakedness and all these things that they, these details about them, they're so familiar because it's really about the human problem. What I want to do in these next few minutes is show you eight things, and they're brief. If you hear eight, I don't want you to disconnect. They're brief. Eight wonderful things that we can learn from this story and this application that he's used to teach us what it means to follow Christ. Some of you may have been here these last few weeks or months. You might be visiting just because you felt like, man, I really kind of feel like we should go to church, but I don't really know what it means to follow Christ. Listen up. Listen close. Some of you young people who've grown up in the church, you may have just sort of been here because mom and dad are bringing you. You might be wondering, what does it mean to follow Christ? Pay attention and listen up in these next few minutes. Those of you who followed Christ or believe that you have, pay attention in these next few minutes and test yourselves to see if you understand what it means to follow Christ. This story has wonderful, wonderful relevance wherever you may find yourself. Consider these truths from this passage. First of all, following Christ means admitting your golden calves. It means confessing and acknowledging that you have lost the battle with sin. It's easy to look back at that story and go, man, what a bunch of buffoons. Trading an earthquake, earthquaking God that speaks from heaven for a golden calf and dancing around the fire like a bunch of hooligans. But trust me, this is the human story. It's a stark and ugly illustration of the very thing that I've done. You look at what Adam and Eve did. Come on, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but you eat from that one? Man, I've done the same thing, haven't you? If we're honest, haven't you? This is apparently the human problem Paul starts the letter to the Roman church with these truths. He says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He's not talking about some men. He's talking about all men. For what can be known about God is plain to them. This could be a commentary on what happened in Exodus chapter 32. What can be known about God is plain to them. He's spoken to them. He parted the Red Sea and they crossed on dry ground. They saw the plagues. It's plain to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, we, are without excuse. For although they knew God, although we know God, we did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but became futile in our thinking. And our foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Man, we're great at worshiping created stuff. You look at them, man, what a bunch of knuckleheads, but we're knuckleheads too. Following Christ means first acknowledging that you've got some golden calves. You've danced around your share of fires. The next chapter, he goes into great deal talking about the 
the depravity of man. None is righteous, no, not one. Two chapters later, chapter three. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. That's pretty absolute, don't you think? None, none, no one. All have turned aside, in case you think somebody may not have. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Just a few verses later is the familiar... All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Following Christ means first acknowledging you have danced around your golden calves. You got to start there. And the second thing, following Christ, means admitting that God has separated himself from you because of your sin. He's moved outside your camp. Because he's holy and you're not. The third thing is following Christ means trusting, though, that he made a payment for that sin. That he atoned for that sin. His blood was brought into the most holy place, accomplishing what all the blood in all the veins and all the capillaries of all the goats and all the bulls and all the lambs and all the sheep in the world past, present, and future could not accomplish. His blood accomplished what nothing else could. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 11 says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent he entered once for all into the holy places. It doesn't have to happen once a year anymore. It's done once and for all, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an, attend- an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, you could insert once a year, How much more will the blood of Jesus, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Following Christ means that you know that your sins were paid paid for. Man, I think about the golden calf consequences where thousands died, where a plague came on the people, And in our story, with our gospel, what we're walking in, as I look to Jesus and I realize he died a thousand deaths for us. He paid the consequences for our golden calves. That's what it means to follow Christ outside the camp. Is you know that he paid for our sin. Fourth, following Christ outside the camp means leaving the sanctuary and the security of the masses. Following Christ outside the camp means leaving the sanctuary and the security of the masses. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14 say this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide 
and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. We could import the, ge- the geography of what he's developed over there in Hebrews to say that those who stay in the camp, those who stay inside the gate, those who remain inside the city are many, and that's the way that leads to destruction. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. It looks safe and secure in the faithless city. It looks like it's going to be just fine, surrounded by folks that are just fine with their sin, surrounded by folks that are just comfortable where they are, that are quite happy right in their human mess. It's safe and secure with that bunch. Those folks are contented maybe with doing some nice things for their neighbors every now and again within the camp, within the city to help them feel better about themselves. But it's safe and secure back there in the city with folks that haven't left the camp because it's easy there. And the folks who stay in the city are many. But those who follow Christ outside the camp go through a narrow gate. And it's hard, by the way. And few find it. But it leads to life at Golgotha of all places. Fifth, following Christ outside the camp means trusting that Jesus is the new and better Moses. The Jews in this context, in the Hebrew letter, Hebrew sermon context, highly venerated Moses. In fact, this Hebrews preacher has already been contrasting how much better Christ is than Moses. And here's an encouragement for you. You may not think a whole lot of Moses, but I will promise you this. You can't look to parent. You can't look to grandparent. You can't look to friend, pastor, teacher, anyone else for salvation. However fine they may be, Salvation will only be found when you seek Jesus Christ himself. And stepping outside the camp means you're not looking to anyone else to save you. You're looking to Christ alone. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The way to the Father is one Jesus wide. Period. But here's the beauty Here's a wonderful reality. In following Jesus outside the camp, it means that that's where you're going to find where God is. Because that's where he is. Because he moved. He didn't move too far away, though. A gracious God moved him just far away. Moved just far away. Far enough away. To where he had to be sought and found through the work and person of his son, Christ is the only access, access, the only priest. He's the only sacrifice that will put you in good standing with your creator who's outside the camp. Sixth, following Christ outside the camp is supposed to be a one-way trip. This is speaking to the Hebrews' problem. They're considering going back into the city. But following Christ outside the camp means a one-way trip. The allure of the safe, 
easy, respectable Jewish life is beckoning these people back into the city, back into the precincts of Judaism. And those who pined for it, ironically, are like their forefathers who pined for the melons and the leeks of Egypt. Following Christ outside the camp is supposed to be a one-way trip. Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. It's a one-way trip. Know that looking back doesn't work out well for you. It won't work out well for you. Ask Lot's wife. It's a one-way trip. Look instead to the future city that has its foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That's where Abraham looked. One of the beautiful realities from this passage, look at it since we're just here right by it. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 10. Abraham is looking forward to the city that has its foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heavens, of the heaven and as many as innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. They were living for a better country, it says in verse 16, a heavenly country. Look at verse 15. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Man, pay attention to that. Looking back will not go well for you. The seventh reality about following Christ outside the camp means reproach and difficulty and rejection and maybe even danger and loss. I don't care what Crazy health and wealth people will promise you on TV. It's baloney. Following Christ may cost you everything. You can expect that if you're going to step away from the masses for Christ, that the masses won't give you some grief. You can't expect that they won't give you some grief. And if you're following Christ, you should know that that's how he died, rejected and condemned the Sabbath breaker was also taken outside the camp and stoned. The leper lived outside the camp. The blasphemer also was taken outside the camp. Following him faithfully means you're going to share in his sufferings. Expect it, even celebrate it, because it means you're following him. It's part and parcel to following him. You're going to experience what he experienced. The eighth thing that's true about following Christ outside the camp is it something that if you do it, you're not going to do it alone. Some of these things may have sounded like a lonely venture so far, like leaving the safety and presence of the masses for Christ outside the camp. Sounds like you're sort of Clint Eastwood going out by yourself. The beauty is you're not by yourself. See, in this passage, is just... Yet another plural verb that we've been collecting through the book of Hebrews. Wonderfully beautiful plural verbs like drawing near, 
like holding fast, like considering how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, like running the race with endurance. Those are all plural verbs. They all have something in front of them. And those two words are, let us hold fast. Let us draw near. Let us consider how to stir one another up with love and good works. Let us run the race with endurance. And then let us go outside the camp. It's something we do together. God is to be sought via Christ in company with the church. Just because you're leaving the masses doesn't mean you're alone. We draw near together. We hold fast together. We run the race with endurance together. And we go to Jesus outside the camp together. And oh, by the way, we also seek the city that is to come together. Yet another plural verb. That's what church is. In some ways, maybe speaking to folks that wanted to understand what it means to follow Christ, we've also spoken to our context in this last point. We live in a context where most of our friends, most of our neighbors, most of our family may maybe even believe that you can follow Christ apart from the church. And the church is just sort of this optional thing for those who are just really dedicated. But that I can follow Christ from the confines of my own home and my own quiet of my own heart. But you see a letter that's written to a church and you see the verbs that are plural And you see what the verbs are, and you realize that, man, some of the guys whose shoulders we stand on knew what they were talking about. Martin Luther said this. Martin Luther is the reason I'm not wearing a funny hat, by the way. Martin Luther is the reason that we're not Catholic. God used a man like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli and guys like that to start the Protestant movement. And here's what a Protestant said about this notion. He said, therefore, he who would find Christ must first find the church. How should we know where Christ and his faith were if we do not know where his believers are? And he who would know anything of Christ must not trust himself nor build a bridge to heaven by his own reason, but he must go to the church, attend, and ask her. Now, the church is not wood and stone, but the company of believing people. Holding fast, drawing near, considering how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, running the race with endurance, and going outside the camp and looking to the city to come. One must hold to them and see how they believe live and teach. They surely have Christ in their midst. For outside of the Christian church, there is no truth, no Christ, no salvation. Our context needs that message. If you talk faith with people that you work with, people that you live by, most of our community has no use for any gathering of the believing. It's so optional They say they love Jesus, but they don't walk with the people. But all these verbs we've been considering Hebrews are done together. I encourage you to consider that. Consider what you are equipped for this morning. Maybe you are equipped for following Christ 
And maybe this imagery from this story in this passage will help you see what it means. Or maybe you were equipped to be salty, bright, and aromatic in your neighborhood and in your workplace and in your context that you were equipped for something. If this is terminal, if you just show up and you come to church and it's just terminal, then you've missed it. You haven't realized that you were supposed to be equipped for something. Some of you might need to respond by having a hard talk with a friend that you love and care about. But if you believe there's no salvation apart from the church, you can encourage that friend or family member or workmate. Get connected to a people. You don't even have to be recruiting for Crosspoint. That's not what this is about. Get connected to a Christ-adoring people because there's no salvation apart from the church. How can you expect to do these verbs apart from the people of God? Most of us, I think, were probably equipped for that this morning. And I promise you that won't be an easy word because you will likely face reproach, You'll likely even experience some suffering should you step out into hard places and hard conversations like that. But remember, he promised that. He's equipped us for it. He's prepared us for it. Let me pray. God, I pray that we will be this people. God, I pray that first and foremost, we will be a people that are who have put our backs to the gate, who have stepped away from the gate in pursuit of Christ. And I'm thankful that as I'm sitting here praying as a representative of this people right now, that we are enjoying wonderful access through what Christ did outside the camp on Golgotha. The place of death was turned to a place of life for us. God, I'm thankful that there's so many beautiful images from this passage about what it means to follow you. I'm thankful that you made a way for us in spite of our golden calves. That as you moved away from us, you didn't move too far. But you moved just far enough to where we would have to draw on Christ to know you and enjoy you and be reconciled with you. So we trust and enjoy our Savior this morning. And we're in fellowship with you because you made a way through him. God, I pray too that this morning it will be mindful that we were equipped for something. That it won't just be a terminal waste of time where we just collect more data and more information and more feathers in our cap about things that we can tell other people about. Well, this is what this really means. But that we will be a people that respond to what you just shared with us and what you just showed us. That we will step off into hard conversations and then we won't be surprised when we experience difficulty as a result. But that we can trust that as we step into those hard conversations that you will use those conversations to be a sweet aroma to some and that it will be the aroma of life to some. And that they'll be drawn into fellowship with your people and fellowship with you as a result of maybe our being ambassadors of truth, beckoning and calling people to be about these verbs with each other. God, I entrust this sermon to you. I entrust these last three years to you that have been building up to this point. I'm thankful. In Christ's name we pray.
Amen. One of the things that I thought was interesting about these parallels this morning, if you were paying attention, we started in some ways a parallel with the Exodus and the golden calf, but then leaned back into the beginning of the story into Adam and Eve's context. And it's interesting that food is part of those stories. Adam and Eve ate of a tree that they weren't supposed to eat of. And then in Exodus 32, the people ate and drank and rose up to play. The beauty for us is that we've been given a proper meal. We get to partake of the proper meal every single week. In Luke 22, verse 14, it says, When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This is a suffering meal, a meal that you take in preparation for suffering as you follow a Savior who suffered. It's to galvanize you. It's to steal you and ready you for it. It's to give you nourishment, to sustain you and give you endurance as you go through it. For I tell you that I will not eat of it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not eat of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This meal, to prepare you whether you should take this meal in these next few minutes or not, this meal is for those who are going after Jesus outside the camp and all that goes with it. And this meal, interestingly enough, is not only a meal that leads us outside the camp, it is the meal that is Jesus outside the camp. He's where we go and he's what we eat in these next few minutes. Let's distribute the elements. This is a proper meal. It's like eating from the, the right tree, tree of life. This is like um, eating from... Not from sacrifices that were made to a golden calf, but sacrifices that were made on our behalf. That's funny how that rhymes. It's like I almost planned that. Totally didn't. <laughs> Let's take and eat in faith and join our Savior. Let's take and drink in faith. Let's continue in song.